I, I think like a lot of the response of the Philippine federal government as a result of the Duterte has definitely been leaning towards a more autocratic slant in terms of enforcing very, very strict quarantines and having like, quote unquote, backed up by military force. I think that's quite tricky situation to navigate because yes, obviously you need to ensure that people follow the response, follow the government mandates. But at the same time, I feel like the lean towards China is sort of a play as well politically for him to be able to align his own autocratic ideology with a success story of China to draw this comparison. Oh, China did it this way, being strict with the people and it worked for them. And therefore the Philippines under my leadership has to be strict to you know, our people. So we're able to be successful in addressing the COVID response as well. You know, when you can judge from the news that the economic situation is really shitty. When you read the news that like young people robbed an old woman and took her wallet, it's not that bad yet. When it's really bad, you will see that young man robbed an old woman and took her noodles and potatoes. And that's what I'm reading a lot in Russian news. I I was always wondering how would the Taiwanese government know if I left my place or not. I had a friend who also was in quarantine, self-quarantine in Taipei. And the police one day showed up at his doorstep uh, because his phone was in airplane mode. And that's how we discovered that they were actually tracking our location from, from our phones. So if we had left and we had our phones, they would know. Hello and welcome to China Talk, now posted on Lawfare. This week we're doing part two of Corona Stories, featuring missives from Manila, Taipei, and Russia by way of Scotland. China Talk has a Patreon account. Check out the link in the show notes. Hello, my name is Pam, and I currently live in Manila, in the Philippines. So the first official government response came pretty late. I would say it was only in late February that there was an official response, though because Philippines has always had like close proximity to China, both economic as well as in terms of the number of customers that flow in and out of the country. There has been like early symptoms ever since January. So I think what took the government so long to respond was a combination of factors. Uh, the first one being that there was a system, a federal system that essentially delegated more responsibilities down to individual barangays and cities instead of having a national coordinated response. That, I think, had a delay, first of all. Uh, the second reason was that Philippine is has always been a country with less resources than our more well-to-do neighbors. So even though there were attempts by like different groups to organize a response, it was mostly uh, centered around local initiatives. So for example, the office of the vice president uh, was already soliciting donations to purchase uh, PPE equipment, but it was not until like the situation became noticeably more serious that a federal response began to like take shape. Yeah, so I think the most uh, obvious one will be in mid-March. That was when the quarantine of Manila started. So originally, Manila, of course, is the capital city of the Philippines. So the first official response came around that time. I don't remember exactly, but I think it was the third week of March when it was ordered for the entire Manila area to be quarantined. And then in a couple of days later, it was extended to the entire Luzon. So Luzon is essentially the largest island in the Philippines, comprising of all essentially the major cities. And so that expanded quarantine uh, took effect, I think, around March 23, 25, thereabouts. It was actually quite hectic because it was essentially announced 
like in China as well, like pretty much very late at night. And it was like implemented the next day. So there was like a lot of confusion as to like which businesses recovered, which area was under lockdown, what was exactly was the specific. So I remember like that week was uh, very difficult because a lot of information was not coordinated well. Uh, like officially, no quarantine or no government proclamation will take effect until it's published in the, the National Gazette or National Newspaper. But then because of like, I guess, the urgency yeah. of the effect, there were different publications that from different sources. Some came through social media, some came through official publications, but the actual effect was really, really confusing because there were so many like nuances as to like essentially which businesses are affected, right? And then how will this quarantine be implemented that with it left many people very difficult for them to actually carry out the, the quarantine since a lot of the actual implementation and to oversee the effect was left to local government. So after the quarantine was announced, then a couple of things started happening. So this was when the national registry of like the people who were infected with COVID began to be updated on a regular basis. And that was when different barangays started delegating responsibilities to the local police as well as the military. So as an example, I live in the south of Manila, and I believe it was in the second week of the second week after quarantine was announced, so late March, that it was noticed that people in my village had confirmed cases of COVID. So what happens then was that the barangay, which is what is known in the Philippines like a kind of like a local municipal government, then ordered that this village should be placed into extended quarantine, meaning that the military was actually asked to step in as well as like the, the police to ensure that the people were not able to leave the village. And so like this basically took place in different uh, sectors as well as different levels of severity. So I know a neighboring village was not as strict with their implementation because there was no confirmed cases there. So people were still allowed to leave and come in and out, whereas in our case, it was no longer allowed. So that is like mostly for residential. So definitely, I think you have to like look at the public as like very granular level. Uh, on one case, there's, I guess, the middle class, upper class who tended to leave, live in this uh, self-contained villages or con condominiums that are gated. So for them, the response, I think, was less, was much more muted because they are able to provide for themselves, obviously. But a lot of like the, the middle, lower class was really put in like a very tough situation because a lot of areas where there was high concentration of COVID was essentially areas that was not so well to do. And so there was like high population density and then essentially it was self-quarantine that was implemented. So basically a whole community will be just like locked in. And then that was when people were stockpiling food from the supermarkets, essentially getting all these supplies, right? But then there was at the same time a supply shortage because places where there's high density did not have the much, uh, did not have enough um, supply to be able to meet all, all those needs. So what happened then was that when the quarantine was announced, there was just like a mad rush to the supermarket, of course, and things started getting sold out. And then that's what we made it extra difficult because the delivery of agricultural products and you know food usually comes from the provinces. And that's also when the government was actually very strict in enforcing the quarantine of Manila. So at that time, there were like checks all along the roads from provincial road coming to the city. So there was like traffic jams. that was like just backing up like for miles on end. And so like that first week, I think was just like really difficult for a lot of like uh, the lower middle class to really get a grasp on things. And obviously at that time, there was no announcement of like what the government response would be in terms of like safety or like, you know, unemployment benefits or things like that. So it was like a very hastily implemented policy that did not really come with any sort of like 
what will the government do except for like imposing a lockdown? Yeah. yeah so generally, the latest big development was I think there was a lot of controversy. I think about two weeks ago when the Duterte, our president, was again calling for you know harsh, harsh penalties for people who are breaking curfew, you know, including like you know getting them arrested, getting them shot, and things like that. But I think outside of like that major you know political story, what has been happening is is really just like a slow deterioration. I think like in general, I have personally not been witness to many of these things. So this is from you know hearsay as well as from my friends. That generally there's like two major trends right now. One is that like the case has been sub decreasing a little bit, and we have been getting more recovery, quote unquote, flattening the curve. But like outside of that, I think the biggest challenge is like in terms of like agricultural supply and food because like the Philippines. Is really not very well prepared to deal with the pandemic of this crisis. And I think, like, if you want to look at like what has resulted ever since the lockdown, you have to look at it from like three different angles. So the first one is like medical, right? Like, are we do we have enough supplies of PPE? Are our hospitals being overwhelmed? That kind of thing. And the second one would be general, like from a public health perspective. So are there any sort of policies that have been addressed that have been implemented to make sure that the Filipinos are able to? adapt to the situation? Are there unemployment benefits that's being paid out? Are they being taken care of despite the lockdown? That's number two. And then number three would be just like the general business people sentiment, right? So on the first level of health care response, this is actually something that we have been struggling with. So a lot of my friends who are doctors here uh, note that, of course, PPE is, is in short supply in many cases. It was only until like, I think two weeks ago that we were able to get like more imports of PPE. So in fact, like, Many private companies were had to step in to be able to like fund a lot of these PPEs. So essentially, the Philippines is very much uh, dominated by these conglomerates. So a lot of them like banded together to to do donations and like PPE drives and food food drives and things like that. Uh, recently, it has subsisted a little bit because the supply after like China has you know finished their case has been like flowing to the Philippines. So now the hospitals are able to address this a little bit better. But still, you know, it's the same in other countries, you know, very overworked nurses, overworked doctors. And there has been like rumors of you know, hospitals having to turn away uh, multiple suspected COVID cases just because they just don't have spaces anymore. And I think this is like a recurring situation in many of the larger hospitals um, here in the Philippines. So in terms of capacity, I think it's we're still facing challenges. Uh, in terms of testing, they are now trying to expand the facilities that can actually test um, for COVID. Because previously, there was only like three, I believe, that was confirmed to meet the standards to do testing. And in the last two or three weeks, I've been trying to ramp it up quite rapidly. So and now I believe there's like 10 different laboratories that are now in the pipeline who are able to test it to various degrees of uh, success. So I think in general that the healthcare response has been adequate, like we are able to meet the, the ongoing challenges. Uh, but I think that just one piece of the puzzle, right? I think the most challenging thing for the Philippines is, is the second part, which is essentially how the Filipinos have been able to adapt to the situation. And I think this is where it's difficult because a lot of like the Filipinos, the, the vast majority uh, live, I would say, paycheck to paycheck, right? They don't have enough savings to be really able to hold out for, you know, a, a month especially not able to work from home, you know, like day laborers or, or you know, blue-collar jobs. And I think this is where the government response has been quite lacking because even though there was like a large um, budget that was dedicated to, you know, this COVID response, a lot of it, I would say about 30% are dedicated to like tourism and kind of like long-term 
economic benefits, not necessarily like short-term subsidies. So there are like division of funds that was addressed to say, supporting local governments, you know, helping them implement and safeguard these communities. There's also a couple, I think a 7 billion pesos, I believe, that was dedicated to supporting small region enterprises. But like this yeah. sum, I think are still very, very much too small for the amount of people that are potentially impacted. Um, as an example, one of my friends uh, owns like a small real estate business. And she told me that when they tried to file for these subsidies, it was basically ran out in like the first week, which again, I think reflects a lot of the, the difficulty the government is facing in terms of being able to provide like a living wage to many of the, the Filipinos, especially from lower middle class who are being affected. So in many cases, it's really, the government has really been pushing the private corporations to, to do their share. And so for example, like the company I work for, Ayala, is one of the largest conglomerates in the Philippines. And they announced the policy that they will continue to pay out wages for people in their company who are unable to work because of, of COVID. I mean, this is common for many of the conglomerates, but the fact that it's basically a corporate driven effort means that a lot of smaller companies might not able to do afford these kind of payments and two are not really able to get government assistance in providing for their, their employees. So I think this is like a major challenge. And there has been already, you know, protests here and there of the, the fact that their labor source of income has been disrupted and there has been very little um, assistance to them. And like, it's actually quite a common thing to see in social media of like, quote unquote, donations, quote unquote, government support being given to them, which has, which is honestly just like very, very, very little. Like we're talking about like maybe like a kilogram of rice for like a family of four for like, you know, a week or something like that. So it's really not enough, I would say, for, for many of these people. If we were to extend this quarantine for a longer time, as the government is sort of thinking about right now to the middle of May for like another month, then I really believe that it will be very, very difficult for a lot of the, the population right now to be able to continue under these conditions. So I think for the precedent, it is kind of a mixed feelings right now. I think he has always been a very controversial figure and many of the more well-educated upper class, I think tend to have very mixed opinions of, of him just because of you know his crass behavior, his very, um, very I would say very Trump-like behavior in some sense. However, I don't think right now there are gonna be significant political repercussions because as of the latest Senate election, it was, a clean sweep by the president's party like out of all the seats that was contested they only lost one seat so i do not think that even if this situation were to worsen that they will be significantly impacted politically right now yeah so i think this is something that's always been tricky because the philippine as of last year or i guess ever since duterte has been like doing a slow gradual lean away from the united states into a pro-china response and it's even quite noticeable in like the government response. So I think it was actually a couple of days ago when Duterte was talking about how, you know, China is like a big assistance to the Philippines, has been giving us a lot of supplies and how, you know, China really did a really great job in handling the virus and things like that. I think like a lot of the response of the Philippine federal government as a result of Duterte has definitely been leaning towards a more autocratic slant in terms of like, you know, enforcing very, very strict quarantines and having like quote-unquote backed up by military force i think that's quite tricky situation to navigate because yes obviously you need to ensure that people 
follow the response, follow the government mandates. But at the same time, I feel like the lean towards China is sort of a play as well politically for him to be able to align his own autocratic ideology with a success story of China, right? To draw this comparison, you know, oh, China did it this way, being strict with the people, and it worked for them, and therefore the Philippines, under my leadership, has to be strict to you know our people, so we're able to be successful in addressing the COVID response as well. So I think the next step will be it's how the Philippines can handle the reopening of the country. I think like for I think for every single leader, world leader, that is the next thing on your mind because it's even harder for the Philippines to be able to stay in a lockdown situation because I mean again the vast majority of the workforce are essentially have to be present right. If we're looking at say the business, the BPO industry, uh, business process outsourcing, like these call centers, they cannot really work from home, right? And then we look at like you know day laborers, constructors, uh, maids, things like that. So because of that fact, I think how the government will handle the opening is going to be the next challenge for this for us. You know, and obviously continue to acquire enough testing materials, PPEs, and things like that as a supply as as a, as needed. I think like this is where it becomes a little bit hazy because as of now, there has been no plan drafted that addresses how and and what are the steps that the government will take to slowly reopen the, the country. And I think if it's simply as haphazard as the closure was, then it's very likely that there will be another outbreak, especially just because if you look at how dense the Philippines is, especially in like the key business, uh, business, business community and business locations. So I think that's one thing that I'm a little bit more worried about. Encouraging things. Well, yes, like we have been having less and less people who have been uh, confirmed to have the cases. And I think our recovery has been increasing. Like objectively, we are still the highest, I believe, in Southeast Asia in terms of confirmed cases and probably one of the riskiest countries. So it's not looking very good from a long term perspective. I think in the short term, it's likely that we'll be able to contain the case without having the significant growth of confirmed cases but i think that's also due to the fact that we have not been able to do adequate mass testing so i guess that's kind of a good thing <laughs> but honestly it's it's not very promising i i just really worry that the lack of federal response is going to like significantly hamper the effects because what's more important is that now that there has been these plans in place to start slowly reimbursing and dis distributing aid to the people who are affected, it's very difficult for all of this to be done at a provincial, at the provincial or municipal level. And a lot of the things that are right now, I think, are promising are essentially has been local efforts. You know, this municipal government has been very forward thinking, has been setting up like mobile markets to help out with the lack of food. For me, I've always been kind of like against the federal system because personally, I feel like it really hampers the ability of government to be able to like roll out these nationwide policies in an effective way. But I would like to commend the fact that the federal system here in the Philippines has made it possible for certain areas to address the issue in a much better way. So I'll just get the example of um, the village I live in, which is because this is the most, I guess, closest to me, is that like our village was like super strict in having like you know, guards be stationed in the bunk so that they do not go home and to have like DM patrol regular to make sure people are not on the streets. And so ever since our village was con first confirmed case, like back in March with like four cases, 
it has not increased at all. Whereas like I know the neighboring villages, which have not been as controlled, have seen a gradual increase in their own affected numbers. And obviously this is like one anecdote, but I do think because the mandate to do quarantine has been roughly left to each individual municipality to determine the severity. It has led to some being more effective than others. And I do appreciate that. But maybe I just, I, but I, so I consider myself lucky in that scenario. I think the federalism in the Philippines is an American legacy just because we were an American colony before. But it's obviously not structured exactly the same way, right? But there has been many similar cases where federalism is seen more prominently. Camille is a Russian national who studied with me at PKU and is now doing a master's in Scotland. Initial government response was pretty funny, I would say, because for many years, Putin was concentrating all the power on the federal level and in his hands. Less and less power for the region, less and less power for provincial governments and more power in Moscow. And rationalization of that all was that we need to survive through hard crisis and the system will be more robust and will deal with hardships better than more flexible maybe and maybe more democratic European or Western systems. That was the explanation. What Putin did was to give all responsibility and to put all responsibility on the governor's shoulders. You should all decide for yourselves so it's funny how in the moment of um, real hardship and in a moment of challenge, he basically uh, refused to take any responsibility. And I think it's pretty logical because um, Russia is not really a rich country. Russia is pretty poor. And all measures such as quarantine, such as lockdown, they will basically destroy people's livelihood in a matter of weeks. So we already have a lot of anger and a lot of resentment in Russia. Yeah, so how it is organized? Basically, it's government from provincial level that should decide, do we have lockdown? If we have lockdown, how will we administer it? For example, Moscow and Tatarstan, two regions in Russia, they organized, if you want to go out, no matter where, to shop anywhere, you need to get a special QR code and to show it to police that you register, you're going out. Other regions don't do it. Some regions block their communications with other regions. So we don't allow like people from other provinces to visit our province. But it's at this moment, it's almost completely a discretion of regional powers. Obviously, the reason is that all the anger of population will be directed against regional governments. I would say for a bulk of Russian population, it's pretty tricky. People's income either was destroyed or diminished greatly. For example, you are getting, even if you you have a salary and even if you are not fired, that means that you will get only your salary but not bonuses, which can be like three, four times bigger than actual salary. So it's totally normal situation, for example, for factory workers in Russia, when your salary, fixed salary, can be maybe like $200 per month, but you get four more times of bonuses. But in this situation, it means that you get only your salary, but not bonuses. And how can you survive on $200? You can't. So there is a lot of grudging, a lot of resentment among the population, especially regarding that the regime of 
emergency is not declared, and that means that people with reduced or no income should still pay their mortgage, should pay their loan to the bank, uh, should pay the interest. So how the government decided to solve it? In a very funny way, they appealed to the social responsibility of businesses that you, uh, entrepreneurs, you are responsible for your workers, pay them. But again, from the perspective of entrepreneurs, how can we pay if we have no income? So the idea is that we establish quarantine like in Europe, but we don't basically bail out the population, help the population like Germany or Spain uh, or other Western countries are doing. And obviously, uh, where the blow uh, is the hardest, um, in which part of Russia people feel the worst, Obviously, North Caucasus, because North Caucasus, it's a region with a huge informal sector, where the people largely live for businesses which are maybe not even registered, which do not exist officially, and informal economy. In these circumstances, it's nearly destroyed. So in Vladikavkar, the capital of North Ossetia, we already have clashes with police, where people demand uh, lifting the quarantine. That's a uh, territory of ethnic minorities. In ethnic Russian regions, their demands are quite different. Because in Russia, we have like our own Google Yandex. So an app for everything. And through this app, you can chat. For example, drivers in a traffic jam, they can discuss. So people started organizing like a digital demonstration they demand declaring emergency so that the government in its extreme situation and basically, for example, allows people to not pay the interest on their loans until it ends. I would say when it comes to can we afford this or not, it's most, it's often not the matter of our budget restrictions or budget limitations. It is mostly a question of priorities. Just look uh, whom Russian government helps. Russian government helps banks, obviously, and also it helps, uh, it's called system comprising companies. So companies that are supposed to be, um, how to say, the pillars of Russian economy. And if you look at it, it's not just manufacturing only, and it's not even only um, natural resources sector. Uh, For example, there are companies, lottery of betting on sportive events. So why would Russian government support these companies? Obviously because it's basically a system of crony capitalism where people with connections in government, they're just cashing out their connections. So if I have the largest company of lottery and betting on sports, it's called, uh, I think, Fondbet. I can pressure or bribe my contacts in government, so that I would get government help. But if I am an owner of a barbershop or a small restaurant, uh, I will not get any assistance. I would say uh, reactions vary. Uh, usually, uh, most of urban, educated young people, they are often uh, supportive of quarantine. So among, I would say, Upper young upper middle class of big cities, 
Many people would even say that it's not strict enough, that we need harsher measures to battle the epidemic. But this is the response among people who, to be honest, um, they don't think they will starve. But the problem is that the majority of the population has little or no savings, or even negative savings. And for them, mm. such a crisis, they will be unable to buy food uh, in a couple of weeks. I would say, from perspective of more than half of Russian population, lockdown is much worse than the epidemic itself. So if we look at uh, Central Asian immigrants who perform most of hard and lowly paid work in a Russian city, they do not get any assistance from government. They still have to pay for the right to work in Russia with no job now. So what we already have, you know, you know when you can judge from the news that the economic situation is really shitty. When you read the news that like young people robbed an old woman and took her wallet, it's not that bad yet. When it's really bad, you'll see that young men robbed an old woman and took her noodles and potatoes. And that's what I'm reading a lot in Russian news, like dozens, dozens, dozens of such news. It means, for example, that millions of hard laborers in big Russian cities, they literally have nothing to eat. I'm not exaggerating. Nothing at all. So, of course, it's a recipe for a huge social crisis. I would say that for Russia, situation is worse than for most of Western countries because two events combined. On the one hand, it's world pandemic with obvious consequences for all the world economies and which resulted in oil prices dropping. That's one thing. Another thing is uh, Putin's personal conflict with Saudi Arabia. But as far as I understood, Putin personally offended Prince Salman of Saudi Arabia um, by refusing to even discuss with him their restriction in oil supply. So it resulted in Saudi Arabia declaring the price war on Russia. And you obviously see it now in the price of oil futures dropping below zero which happened yesterday. So I don't really think that current Russian regime can survive two of these factors uh, simultaneously. So it means I don't believe Putin's regime will be able to survive in its current form for another couple of years. I don't think so. I would say that uh, Russian relations to China were complicated. On the one hand, Russian popular anti-Americanism, it meant that many layers of Russian population, they have sympathy to China because they dislike America so much. That's one factor. But there was also another factor. It's that much of Russian population, on the other hand, perceives China as a threat. Because honestly, from all the Russian territorial neighbors, China is the only power that can potentially crush Russia. The only power which is basically stronger than Russia. What uh, we see now, I don't really see in Russia that much of uh, blaming China for epidemic. Somehow I think it's more of American or European. But I would say that uh, probably more than half of Russian population will be too much preoccupied with the economic hardship uh, to, uh, 
think about relations with China. What I would say uh, the move, um, what I would say now is um, that now in Russia there is much more demand on bigger government and stronger welfare because um, what I see now that people who used to be strictly libertarian that basically uh, let the poor starve, do not interfere into economy, so people with these attitudes, they are now changing their attitudes very quickly, basically with their businesses destroyed, with their incomes destroyed, and when they read the news about Germany or Spain or the UK giving generous handouts to their population to survive this crisis, on the one hand, it makes them much more critical of Russian government, which does nothing of com- comparable. And on the other hand, I think that in the eyes of most of Russian population, welfare state, which will be much more legitimate after this crisis, um, stops. So now I see even right-wing people advocating for more benefits. What I would also add, you know, Russia is much more prone to various conspiracy theories than uh, most of European countries. For many reasons, part of reason is that Russians generally trust their government much less than Europeans. And there is also a big wave of denial. So, with many people, like in the US, basically, denying that coronavirus is even a threat at all, implying that it is all mm, somehow a conspiracy of elites to establish total control of the population. And it's interesting that what I said, Russians uh, watch situation in other countries, and like in Europe, they see that in Europe uh, there are generous handouts, and that makes them resentful against Russian government. For example, I am now I watched a YouTube video with Lukashenko, president of Belarus, where Lukashenko said there will be no no lockdown. People are responsible for their own health themselves, and it's your own choice to sit at home or to walk out. Overwhelmingly, like I would say, ninety five percent of comments was absolutely supportive. Top rated comment was. Obviously, the daddy, because Lukashenko is called the daddy, the Illuminati assembly, like hundreds of likes. So, um, I would say that a lot of anger against the economic consequences of lockdown, uh, they produce a huge wave of denial that coronavirus can threat is even serious. And uh, now Belarus, with its Lukashenko, who refuses to declare lockdown, it was usually regarded by Russians as a bastion of despotism. Now many regard it as a bastion of freedom. Again, what it's important just to, to understand what I'm saying is that my connections and my contacts in Russia, they're not very representative. Um, just it's people whom I know and talk to Russia and people whom I know personally, they are predominantly young people who either emigrated or are planning to emigrate. More than half of our high school class now live outside of Russia. So I wouldn't say that my data is very representative. uh, What I know about um, 
the feelings and the thoughts of majority of the bulk of Russian population. I know mostly from social media and articles and what I read in comments in social media. But the feeling that I get from it is that uh, people do not believe anymore that Russian government is truly functioning. If you ask me, what, what do you th- how do you think, Camille, what is the biggest problem in Russia? I wouldn't say it's corruption. I wouldn't even say it's the absence of freedom. I would say that the most fundamental, worst problem, it's inverted social hierarchy. It's absurd. What I mean by inverted social hierarchy? My friend who graduated uh, from a medical academy and now works as a receptionist in hotel because it pays more. What you see in Russia is that people with intellectual professions, such as doctors or engineers, can be hugely, unbelievably underpaid. And it means that uh, people who... uh, are competitive on the world market. If they can, they will understand the most fundamental problem of Russia. Let's say it's military industry plant and they hire janitors for higher salaries than engineers. Unless I saw it with my own eyes, I wouldn't really believe it. But that's just how Russia is functioning. Which means that anyone who can and anyone who can um, basically produce labor worth of something in the international market, will emigrate. What I believe to be the explanation of uh, Putin's measures during the epidemic is that he wants to lift any responsibility from himself. I am not declaring emergency. I am not telling you to do anything. You are governors. You are decide what to do in your regions. And obviously he thinks it's very smart because all the anger and resentment will be directed against the governments. But the problem is the population doesn't buy it because everyone in practice understand, understands that all the power has been concentrated by Putin and he told about it for decades. So uh, I believe that the main outcome for Russia will be the delegitimization of ruling regime. Hi, I'm Asma and I live in Taiwan, in Taipei, to be precise. The reason I was in quarantine, basically, was that on February 22nd, I left Taipei to go to Seoul. And it was around the, I think, I landed the day the super spreader was discovered and it started getting worse in South Korea. And so I was going to Seoul to renew my visa, but also because I had a medical appointment. And so as soon as I had my visa renewed, the same day I flew back to Taipei and I had to go under mandatory self-quarantine. So I left the airport. When I landed in the airport, I had to sign some paperwork, basically stating that I'll be in quarantine for a period of 14 days. That document was stamped by the was like stamped by the authorities in the airport. And it also it had like at the back of it, a chart with like a list of, you know, symptoms that you might have and that you should keep track of during your uh, 14 days quarantine. Of course, I took an Uber from, because I was, I was avoiding public transportation, I took an Uber from the airport to, to my place, entered, locked myself, and stayed here for 14 days, surviving on Uber Eats and Food Panda deliveries, because I don't have a kitchen. During the 14 days, though, because it's self-quarantine, and so I 
before coming back from Seoul, I was reading a lot about self-quarantine in Taipei. And I've I've read, you know, news about people that breached their self-quarantine and were fined between 2,000 to 4,000 US dollars for, for, you know, for leaving their self-quarantine. And and so, I mean, I took it seriously. I I was always wondering how would the Taiwanese government know if I left my place or not, because it's not like it's a government facility where they can track you down. But then every day uh, of my quarantine, I would get two phone calls, one in the morning and one in the afternoon from two different institutions. I think one was the municipality and the other one was someone from the ministry of foreign affairs. So it was two different people that would always on a daily basis would call me at different times, ask about my temperature, ask about, you know, if I had any symptoms, coughing, if if I was feeling okay, if I had food. And then they would ask also, which I found very troubling, they would give they would give me information about myself to double check if it was me. So for instance, in one of the calls, they were like, oh, uh, is this asthma? Did you graduate from Oxford? Did you, are you studying in this place? Are you doing this and that? And it's just like a little bit intrusive, which is information I've never given. So I was always wondering where that came from. And I had a friend who also was in quarantine, self-quarantine in Taipei. And the police one day showed up at his doorstep uh, because his phone was in airplane mode. And that's how we've discovered that they were actually tracking our location from, from our phones. So if we had left and we had our phones, they would know. I think around the 11th or 12th day, they've sent me f- five face masks through through mail. And they called me to make sure that I, that I, that I picked them up from the from the mailbox and then the same day that they, that they sent me this map they also just someone from the municipality came and they brought me a gift bag and then in that gift bag had a chinese poetry book it had um <laughs> chili pepper like spicy um and then it had like oatmeal i think noodles like a bunch of like like a survival kit or like this bag, but which I got towards the end of my self-quarantine, which I thought was a nice touch. So Asma's brother was actually studying in Wuhan. Since the beginning of 2020, the guy has been in quarantine. <laughs> so, so he was like, he was there when the whole thing was happening. Yeah, no, it's it was after a year. So, so yeah, he was still finishing. Like, like he was like adding another semester. But basically, my Chinese New Year was like just shit because like I felt so so much responsibility and guilt because I'm the one that was like Wuhan University. Yeah, <laughs> so I was like, if the guy dies there, I'm like, I'm yeah, I'm just I should just kill myself because I'm not gonna be able to face my parents. <laughs> and so I was like every day, like four times like FaceTiming with him. Like when he goes to grocery buy-in, when like he does anything, like when he has to like go, like I'm just like on the phone and I'm like avoid people. It's like, he's like, where are the people to avoid? Like he sent me like pictures of like, you know, how Resident Evil, I mean, what you're seeing right now in the world, like it started in Wuhan. It was much more scarier. Thank God the the Moroccan government moved this ass and like evacuated all Moroccans in Hubei in like one week after the lockdown started. 
fully funded. They didn't have to pay. I was like, Americans have to pay $1,000? What kind of evacuation is that? And then he had to go to Morocco and he stayed in quarantine in a military base for 20 days, a military hospital in 20, for 20 days. And it was the best experience for him because he was like, we're like, this is a five-star treatment. We're getting his like room service. His He's like, he's staying in an ensuite room with the kitchen. And he was like, I have a garden. I was like, what? <laughs> for 20 days there. It's because the king is the one that gave the orders. So when the king gives the orders, that's it. Like... You just like you're you're in for like the royal treatment from like evacuation to like they literally like they there was like five buses that went around Hubei picking up people to take them to the airport. And then after so he finished his like quarantine, the twenty days quarantine, they've given them like they gave them like per deans and also like tickets, train tickets and and flight tickets to go back to their to their home city. And my brother went to Marrakesh because that's where my parents and people are not prepared. And he was like, I'm just going to stay away from people. And so he self-isolated. And then March, I think, 12th, Morocco imposed the lockdown, a complete shutdown of everything, closed all, like within 24 hours after 20 cases were detected. Within 24 hours, Moroccans woke up with land borders, um, like maritime borders, airlines like like air borders everything was closed like airports were shut down everything was shut down tourists were evacuated by their countries but yeah it's a complete shutdown right now i think it's it's they're doing pretty well though we just have i think a thousand um 300 but but the government has been doing pretty well i, I guess also because like when you have like a regime that is not completely democratic in a way and where you have like you know a figure that is kind of like controlling everything things happen just like china regulations are passed quickly morocco is, is literally producing five million masks like face masks a day as of now and they're like inventing like ventilators for icu patients like when this whole thing, when they went on shutdown, basically they, the government came out and they're like, we only have 300 ICU beds. So better, like they've imposed like a self-quarantine on everyone. Like all businesses are closed except essential businesses like pharmacies, grocery um, uh, stores and supermarkets and hospitals. Everything else is just like closed down.